Hey everyone, this is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and the worlds around them. Growing up, I'll never forget this show called The Swan. It was a reality TV show where women who had been considered ugly by someone um, were given makeovers that included several forms of reconstructive plastic surgery. And on the show, each contestant was assigned uh, to a panel of specialists. There was a coach, a therapist, a trainer, cosmetic surgeons, and a dentist who collaborated together to design a custom program for total body transformation. And each week, uh, the contestants' work ethic and transformation were were monitored by the judges. And at the end um, of each, you know, each show, um, one of the contestants uh, went home until the swan was left um, at the season finale, and they all kind of competed in this in this beauty pageant um, to reveal their the cosmetic surgery procedures that they had they had undergone. And this so this was like in the early two thousands when I, I feel like the extreme makeover reality TV show was such a popular theme, and where the act of demolishing your home and like reconstructing your face. Uh, seems to be enjoyed by the American public with a similar sense of suspense and satisfaction. Well, for once, I'm happy to have grown up without cable because I totally totally (laughs) missed that. But um, cosmetic surgery is one of the fastest growing medical procedures in the U.S. And according to 2019 figures from the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, the U.S. is the country where the largest number of cosmetic procedures are conducted annually, currently totaling around 3.9 million, which of course also doesn't include the number of Americans who actually leave the country to get work done, which is a whole other topic. But the US is also home to the largest number of practicing cosmetic surgeons who are among the country's highest paid medical professionals according to Medscape. Plastic surgery is also a growing industry globally and countries like Brazil, Mexico, Japan, and South Korea are sought after destinations for people who are seeking specialty procedures among all kinds of other incentives. So it, it seems you know, enduring with us as a species, right? That human beings seem to stop at practically nothing to use the tools around us to transform our environment and increasingly our bodies. But these activities, which also include our aesthetic norms and aspirations for beauty and perfection, are also intensely social and political. And so on today's show, we really wanna dig into asking what are the ways that cosmetic surgery is enmeshed in the thorny politics of race, ethnicity, and gender in the United States and across the world? And also how is social media shaping our aspirations about what it means to be beautiful? So to dig into these questions, we are so pleased to have Dr. Alka Menon on the show today. Dr. Menon is a medical sociologist and professor at Yale University, and her research centers on the relationship between the body and social identities, especially race and ethnicity, and how these ideas manifest in the realm of cosmetic surgery. So to to kick this off and um, welcome Alka, 
Um, we would love to ask you what provoked your interest in the in studying plastic surgery as a medical sociologist and also like Marcel and I is I think just curiosity question to get your input on is why do you think that people get cosmetic surgery in the first place? Thanks for having me. So I knew very little about cosmetic surgery when I started graduate school in sociology. Uh, I came in interested in racial categorization, and that was based on my prior work um, in public health in the city of Houston, uh, where I was part of a team that was delivering tuberculosis treatments uh, to different people. And we had this debate about how we should be racially identifying our clients. Uh, there was sort of on one side, people said, well, we should just eyeball it. On the other side, people, people advocated for self-identification on the part of the clients. Um, but this was tricky because a number of our clients were actually refugees and didn't speak English very well and would just check the first box, which was Asian there. And so it looked like there was a spike in uh, Asian rates of tuberculosis. And so that's what sparked this debate. So I came in interested with, with this kind of thinking about the relationship between uh, large scale public health data collection by race and you know the people who are actually having to go out and make those decisions about what, what box you tick. Um, and, and so I was in grad school to, to study that kind of relationship and I was looking for a case. Um, where th these issues would really be brought into focus. Um, and at the time in medical sociology, uh, a lot of what was being discussed about race was about genetics and genomics and how the increasing popularity of those fields was changing how people thought about racial identities. Um, and so the fear was that, uh, that genetics and genomics were rebiologizing notions of race in popular discourse, sort of aided by media reporting about what scientists were finding. So against this backdrop, you know, I'm a first year grad student and I come across this newspaper article about ethnic plastic surgery. Uh, and it quotes a plastic surgeon that said, when a patient comes in from a certain ethnic background and of a certain age, we know what they're gonna be looking for. We're sort of amateur sociologists. So that statement really piqued my interest because this was such a different approach to race um, and the genetic and molecular approach that other sociologists like Troy Duster had been talking about at the time. And it captured some of the, the, the complexity of the designations that, that I had been seeing as a public health worker of thinking about race as also uh, having, having a sort of cultural background. And so from there, it was kind of a rabbit hole of, of looking at that plastic surgeon and finding out this, this world um, where cosmetic surgeons were, were claiming expertise in various kinds of social identities. Can you tell us more about the field of ethnic plastic surgery? Like what exactly, what exactly does that subfield you know, entail? What kind of procedures do they do? What is that? Yeah, so ethnic plastic surgery is not a very clearly institutionalized field in the way that something like hand surgery or even nose surgery, rhinoplasty. These are, these are subfields of plastic surgery where you can go to a residency program and get a certificate or do a fellowship. And so there's a kind of recognized 
body of expertise uh, that would be in medical credentialing associated with it. So ethnic plastic surgery was was a kind of expertise, but also uh, kind of a marketing move. It signaled surgeons' attention to the unique cultural and aesthetic preferences of people of color in many cases. Um, And it was associated with a break from what had been perceived as a norm in the United States with plastic surgery of a kind of uh, white look or a one-size-fits-all appearance. Ethnic plastic surgery was a way of indicating some level of customization. Um, And it offered also the potential for thinking what different ideal um, enhancements would look like for people of different racial or ethnic groups. So it's it's a smaller sort of affiliation within the field. Surgeons write articles about ethnic plastic surgery or they call themselves experts in Asian cosmetic surgery or African-American cosmetic surgery on their websites, but there's not really the same kind of infrastructure behind it. And it's always had this kind of, um, you know, it, it hasn't taken off in the way that I thought that it might when I first found this as this this newspaper article. It sort of maintained its its status as a smaller specialized thing. And is it is it a subfield that's only like really practiced and I guess like accredited in in the United States? Like is this a particularly like American subspecialty? So definitely the the name or label ethnic plastic surgery appears more associated with American institutions. But um, as my research suggested, when I sort of followed these these articles that were published in medical journals using the the framework, there are people uh, who who use this label to sort of talk about generalizing their knowledge um, from South Korea, from Mexico, from Colombia to patients of color in the United States as well. Um, but it's not, you know, as, as I was saying, it's not really, it's not really a field where you're gonna have printed on your certificate ethnic plastic surgery. It's more of like a, a low key way of differentiating yourself um, and, and indicating an awareness of social um, issues related to race. Hmm. So like embedded in like a, a surgeon saying that they have expertise or an offering at this ethnic plastic surgery realm, there's sort of, um, I guess, would you say like a, like a political um, uh, association or set of, or a set of concerns that, that these doctors, these doctors have, like, that's one question. The other question I have is what do these procedures actually entail in this field? So double question for you. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess um, they, let me think about that one. There's, there is a political orientation on the part of some of the surgeons who use this label, but it's actually become just a kind of code for indicating that there's an awareness that operating on patients of color requires slightly different techniques and sensitivities both for cultural reasons that people might not want the same look or want anything that would be associated with whiteness, but also because of um, potential differences in healing, in scarring, um, and in the sort of physical features of people who have different physical characteristics. So in that way, surgeons were signaling a kind of technical expertise more than I would say a political awareness, but there were some surgeons who used this kind of as a political category of gesturing to a different version of beauty. 
And can you remind me what the second question you asked Marcel was? What was it? Oh, I think the question was what what exactly do these is there like a sort of a, a, a set, set yeah, a set of procedures that you, you mentioned these techniques, but I guess what are there procedures or um that, that I guess fall under this realm of ethnic plastic surgeries or more just gesturing to like uh, a surgeon's awareness of, I guess, different, as you, as you mentioned before, you know, like scarring. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So actually there are some procedures. So the American Society of Plastic Surgeons released this report, um, I think around the year 2010, where they talked about the eyes and the nose as some of the most ethnically indicated features. And so a lot of the, um, the, the articles that, that surgeons write that use this, this label of ethnic plastic surgery focus on the face in various capacities. And so it's less common to see um, ethnic plastic surgery applied to procedures like breast augmentation or tummy tucks or facelifts. So there is something about the look that people are going for, not just the kind of surgical technique employed generally on patients. Mm, so this is kind of like racialized facial features that that become sort of like the focus of of expertise and and wow that's super fascinating. Thank you for thank you for sharing more about that. I definitely feel like I have noticed myself. Um, I have noticed plastic surgeons in advertising of various um, methods, including like posters and flyers, advertise themselves as ethnic plastic surgeons. Um, so, and that was something that when I first saw it, I had no idea what it meant. So this is actually, and I don't think that even Googling it really helped that much. So this is um, really interesting to hear for clarification. But um, you published a study, Alka, um, in the journal Ethnic and Racial Studies that explores how cosmetic surgeons in the US draw on and reproduce racial, ethnic, and gendered stereotypes about biological human difference in this practice. So could you tell us more about um, how you set up that study and share some and um, share some of what you found? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to back up and answer one of your initial questions from the outset, you know, why do people get plastic surgery in the first place? Um, you know, people do it for different reasons. Some say that they want to improve their appearance and look better. Uh, some number of people focus on changing one physical feature to do that, like their eyes, nose, or breasts. Other people imagine something that requires more intervention and is maybe more dramatic. Um, and so what I was looking at in this study was something that had emerged as a shift in plastic surgery discourse. Um, and so you know, historically, cosmetic surgeons in the United States were famous for delivering one look to their patients to the point that particular nose shapes were named after particular surgeons. It was like a brand. Um, so this was a one-size-fits-all market, and that market catered almost exclusively to white patients. But starting in the 1970s with the Black is Beautiful movement, cosmetic surgeons began to develop ethnic or racial-specific standards of beauty broadening beyond sort of one white look. Um, and so in this article, I take a closer look at the development of these racial specific standards as published in medical journal articles. And I'm conceptualizing them as a form of, of 
new and distinctive expertise that surgeons are asserting. So I wanted to look at, at the medical discourse, you know, what the, the nuts and bolts of what surgeons saw as related to race. So I searched in a medical database for, for medical journal articles um, published in a couple of plastic surgery journals that had a racial term in the title or abstract. And, you know, following that uh, logic of the American Society of Plastic Surgeon uh, linking procedures about the eyes and the nose to racial or ethnicity, I focused primarily on facial procedures. Um, and so in that way, I built up a sample of around 80 published articles and looked across them. And these were articles that had titles like African-American rhinoplasty, rhinoplasty is the word for nose job, uh, mestizo rhinoplasty, Indian-American rhinoplasty. There was just a proliferating number of different kinds of racial labor, labels. So what's in those articles? Um, I found that cosmetic surgeons were, were across all of these articles, lauding a norm of what they called ethnic preservation or staying within the recognizable bounds of an existing racial group in modifying patients' appearances. And they specified cultural and physical criteria for ensuring that happens. Um, so another thing they did in some of these articles was was sort of distinguish what a quote unquote ethnic nose was from a white nose. Um, and they would kind of create these abstract types. Some of them were, were visual renderings um, with varying degrees of computer savviness in the software um, since some of these articles were published as early as the early nineties. Um, and, and I think that one, um, thing that was very clear from looking at these articles is that racial and ethnic categorizations were proliferating. Surgeons would get more and more specific. They would talk about the four subtypes of the mestizo nose or the, the four subtypes of the Indian American nose and talk about potentially comparing a type four Indian American nose to a type two mestizo nose, for example. Um, and, and so instead of rejecting the sort of Indian American mestizo distinction, they were kind of working within those um, and elaborating because they thought that this had some sort of resonance with what how patients themselves identified. Um, and of course, these racial standards were also inflected by assumptions about gender. So one of the most striking examples of this is a discussion in one article of uh, quote unquote macho nose which the, the authors described for Hispanic men. And what they meant by that was a nose with a bump in it. So it looks like, you know, you might've been in a fight and that it healed a little sideways. And so it goes with the whole um, expression of masculinity alongside uh, a, a ethnic identity of, of being Hispanic. Um, and that's different than a sort of thinner, more delicate nose that the same article prescribed for Hispanic women. So, you know, the, in, in creating these looks, um, they, surgeons are, are, were kind of reifying and biologizing both racial and gender differences and giving physical forms to cultural concepts of masculinity, femininity, or ethnic identity um, in, in their work. Yeah, this paper is so fascinating to me for a variety of reasons, but I mean, one of the things that really stands out to me, and I guess a, a, a question that I have for you is 
how much of like the the because it seems like these typologies are just hearkening back to like you know 19th century like the birth of this type of like like race science proliferation of categories that you were that you were talking about like how much of the the i guess theories and like the and, and practice around you know uh, the macho nose and the indian american nose were drawn from the surgeon's own um uh i guess aesthetic preferences or um aesthetic preferences and how much of that was you know uh based on the the consultations that they were having with patients like was it is it are these i guess what i'm trying to ask is are these like standards for you know the african-american nose the indian american nose are these um formed solely in the imagination of the surgeons or is it more of like a a dialogue between them and their patients so in the articles, it was often very much based on the aesthetic sense and judgment of the surgeons. Some of the articles would report creating composite images or taking actual images of patients um, to, you know, some man, some like group of people on the street and rating them statistically as attractive or not. So there would be some external uh, group that they would invoke to, to verify the aesthetic nature of what they were doing. But most often it was it was based on sort of abstract principles of harmony and balance and aesthetic beauty um, that was kind of black boxed in the surgeon themselves. And that was very much, you know, what was being offered in these articles, the, the aesthetic judgment of this surgeon based on their clinical experience in the place where they were practicing. Now, when I actually talked to plastic surgeons, which I did subsequent to writing this article, um, and I talked to some of the people um, who wrote these articles as well as practitioners uh, who, who did not, they, then it was a little bit clearer that, uh, you know, when you're writing something for a, a journal article, you're gonna emphasize the contrast and, and talk about your unique contribution your perspective on the issue. But when you're confronted with, a, with an actual patient, there's some negotiation involved of, well, what do you want? You know, do, do I see that as aesthetically indicated? Or maybe is there something in between that we agree on that would be an improvement and we could start with that and take it from there? Um, so there was some amount of, uh, of patient input into this. And it was clear from from um, different interactions I had with patients that they too were looking for, um, some of them anyway, were looking for a ethnic specific look. They wanted to maintain their ethnic look or to, to enhance it in some cases. And so that language was there, but sort of fleshing that language out um, was in practice a, a little bit of a negotiation between the surgeon and the patient. That's really fascinating. And also just hearing you speak about this tension between this like desire for ethnic authenticity and so this like approximation, you write an approximation of a wider appearance. And you have this, you have this quote in the article that talks about how the sort of the, the category of whiteness as a sort of aesthetic norm gets its boundaries and edges through how um, the surgeons describe and, and and talk about not only like white features, but the features of non-white people. So I was, I was wondering, like, what have you also learned about how whiteness as like an ethno-racial category is, is, is constructed um, 
you know, through the plastic surgery discourse and, and practice, like what does it mean to be white and look white in a plastic surgery office, for example? Right. So, you know, I think that definitely whiteness for many surgeons is a sort of taken for granted baseline because many of the patients they learn on are white. Textbooks often will assume a white patient. Um, and, and the way that this really became apparent to me was by interviewing plastic surgeons in Malaysia, where most of the patients that they see are not white. And so they, they would point out that, hey, some of the basics that they, they train you on in these textbooks, which are published in the United States or the United Kingdom or Australia, they have what, what they're considering to be universal is actually a feature associated with some number of white women. So, you know, whiteness, of course, is a big tent too. Um, and what was interesting in these articles that surgeons were writing was their, their ways of, of trying to generalize and abstract out notions of what ethnic is and what whiteness is. Because in the end, most cosmetic surgery patients in the United States are white women. And so surgeons have developed all sorts of ways to modify the appearances of white women to, and, and to make them arguably um, maintain ethnicity as part of that look, right? There's not uh, a whole nose procedure that would take a white woman um, and have her look Asian, for example. That's not how this conversation goes in the U.S. It's, it's only the other way. And so I think that that's a kind of important backdrop to thinking about what's possible here and also what the, the sort of development of a white standard alongside Asian, Indian American, Black, um, Hispanic, et cetera, et cetera, categories, all of that presumes that these categories can be separated out, that they exist as racial types out there in the world with some sort of physical basis and or cultural basis differentiating them. Um, and in real life, there's actually a lot of messy in between. You know, what about mixed race patients? What about... Um, a black patient who has a white mom who says she wants a nose like her mom's, right? So I think that there's, when, when the narratives of change actually became quite important, it was not just what the look was because the look always depends on some relation to something else, to an imagined other possibility. But the narrative that you said about why you wanted to, to, to make that change and what you were doing as part of that project was important. Yeah, I, I think that that part um, about the messiness and also the um, the construction of the idea of whiteness is one of my favorite parts of the of your text that we read because I think it's so interesting the way you point out that what looks white is in itself not only obviously a constructed and like fantastical idea in many ways, but it's also a moving target because not mm -hmm. only does it change over time, but it changes based on where you are. Like, I feel like I even can relate to this personally as someone who has a mixed racial heritage and who has lived in a bunch of different places over the course of my life. People are always guessing what I am based on certain features of mine. And that was something that I got used to very early as a child. Like, for example, even having curly hair can be interpreted so many different ways based on the kinds of people who you're around. And over time, even from the 90s until now, perceptions about what I look like have also changed. So I think um, that paying attention to how those things aren't static is really fascinating. But also, you know, digging a little bit more into 
the work that you've done from a global perspective as this conversation about plastic surgery tends to be so centered in, in the US and in a white American version of beauty. Um, what have you learned about the salience um, of race, of, of racial, ethnic and gendered ideas and the aesthetic norms that, go, that come with them with doctors and patients outside of the US? Like, is there, do you think that, you sort of already touched on this, but is there a difference in how these ideas are, are like relatively constructed? Definitely. So what I, what I did is I expanded, you know, after I, I found these um, medical journal articles that talked about ethnic rhinoplasty, I, I went all the way in. I started interviewing surgeons. I observed surgeons in professional meetings um, worldwide. And I decided, you know, I was curious about the extent to which this was an American story. Americans, of course, have this multicultural ideology that um, people are beautiful each in their own way uh, and that that should, difference should be celebrated. And so I settled on Malaysia as another site where I could investigate these questions about racial appearance. Um, Malaysia, like the United States, is a multi-ethnic society, but the, 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 the locally recognized uh, racial groups are all different Asian racial groups, including Indian, Chinese, Malay, um, and then a, a whole big um, mixing pot soup of people from all over the world who, who are working in the global city of Kuala Lumpur. So what I learned by comparing what American surgeons are doing and what Malaysian surgeons are doing is that at one level, it's the same. Cosmetic surgeons are acting as gatekeepers to idealized racial, racial and gender appearances. But what is an ideal racial and gender appearance was different in the US versus Malaysia. So it wasn't that um, people wanted to, to look sort of in a generic ethnic way or sort of ethnically ambiguous in Malaysia. Uh, there were specific uh, alternate stories that surgeons reported their patients as seeking. Uh, so for example, that what's a, a common procedure in Malaysia, um, especially for Malays and Malaysian Chinese uh, patients is the double eyelid surgery. Um, and, and surgeons would talk about, well, you can have a Caucasian look with that. You can have a Asian look with that. Um, and some surgeons even brought up the potential of a Korean look. And so it was very much again about the narratives of what are people looking for? What is the aesthetic as, as related to a larger lifestyle or cultural trajectory that you wanted to be associated with? And where were you getting your ideas about what beauty was um, and, and how that would relate to what would be acceptable or appropriate in the context of Malaysia? Wow, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, that... I, I've, I feel like it would be fascinating to put together like a, um, some sort of compiled um, it, um, version of, of different plastic surgeons around the world's um, ideas of what their patients are looking for when seeking perhaps like a similar type of procedure. But I mean, of course, like I think probably most American surgeons wouldn't be able to differentiate even a lot of the minor differences that you're describing between like not only broader racial groups, but smaller um, ethno-national differences. Right. And um, that's fascinating. But 
you know, speaking of the of this also interest in America, which I think is fascinating of having an, a, a specifically ambiguous look, um, there's an article that we wanted to bring up, which um, appeared in the New Yorker um, by Gia Tolentino, uh, um, in which she addresses this idea of the Instagram face, which is like its own aesthetic that has come about, you know, within the past, I guess, 10 years, but probably more recently, uh, closer to five. <laughs> Um, and she describes this phenomenon as, I quote, a young face, of course, with poreless skin and plump high cheekbones. It has cat-like eyes and long cartoonish lashes. It has a small, neat nose and full lush lips. It is a face that is distinctly white, but ambiguously ethnic. Um, so I think that anyone who spent time on Instagram, which unfortunately includes me, is probably immediately knows what kind of face she's describing here. But what are your thoughts about social media's impact on enculturating cosmetic surgery to a new generation and the emerging aesthetic norms that appear to be arising, but also to are being disseminated by social media itself? That's a really great question. So I think that, you know, what it points to is cosmetic surgery's symbiotic relationship with larger media industries for its visions of beauty. Um, and so while what those media industries have been has changed over the like hundred year existence of, of the contemporary field of plastic surgery. Um, you know, social media is the latest iteration of that. And social media is a little different from traditional past sources of media like magazines or um, television or film stars in that it's, it's the, the gatekeepers are more diffuse. It's a little more bottom up. It's not like there's studios who are deciding who looks good and casting people as beautiful and ideal um, or that there's airbrushing from the magazine's perspective, uh, but rather that people can alter their images online or select how they wanna present themselves uh, using social media sort of to some degree organically. Um, but of course, everybody's looking at what everyone else is doing um, and they're getting inspired by, by other people's representations of themselves. Um, and surgeons have also gotten in on the action and have pretty robust social media presences in many cases where they uh, can both sometimes share images of patients who have had transformations as examples of what could be or in some cases even show themselves conducting cosmetic surgery via Snapchat with, with patient's consent to sort of normalize what this could look like and, and give people the opportunity to see it um, in a way that's like the kinds of TV shows that Marcel was talking about in the beginning, but much more accessible. It's a little less sensationalized, voyeuristic, and more a way of inviting people to imagine themselves as mutable and modifiable in these ways. So social media definitely has, has made cosmetic surgery and the whole notion of thinking about how one looks much more familiar and to, to thinking about changing that as something that's familiar and something that could be tried on digitally perhaps before one goes under the knife. But it also changes the kinds of scrutiny that people have for their own Faces um, and you know, kind of an interesting outgrowth of the the coronavirus moment. You know, initially, people the, the the rates of cosmetic surgery in the United States went way down, 
it was an elective procedure that could be delayed and medical supplies were hard to come by. Um, and, you know, whenever there's a recession, usually demand for cosmetic surgery goes down. But actually, as people were spending all their time on Zoom and looking at themselves through through webcams or their phones, um, there, there, there was sort of a resurgence in people who were signing up for cosmetic surgery wait lists with this new gaze upon themselves and constantly being confronted with how they look um, and wanting to, to change it now that the tools that, um, you know, that you have using Zoom or social media can, can automatically put makeup on you or change the appearance of your nose without you having to, to do anything. Well, people want to extend that into real life as well. So it definitely changes um, how people see themselves and how they, they see themselves as potentially changeable. Um, but it also exposes people to, to a range of aesthetics that are slightly maybe more differentiated than would, would have been the case in a previous era where we were all subject to whatever was on TV. Um, and if, if you were a person of color, you may or may not see yourself represented uh, with a with a viable look in that way. So this gives gives the, the opportunity for different kinds of um, less white or mainstream looks to proliferate as inspirations too. Wow, that is fascinating about, about Zoom and spending more time on the internet would actually encourage people to want to change their appearance. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm also feel that um, the the you know proliferation of self-created images of people you know by i mean again images made by them of them has probably um, played a role in in just normalizing plastic surgery in the first place um since we see people who've had plastic surgery just much more often i think at least i see so much more of it on instagram in a way that's either being publicly discussed as obviously in a you know back, let's say 20 years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something that was um, talked about candidly, at least not amongst the people that I was spending time with. But now I feel like it's something I witness in a way that is, is like losing its shock value more and more as the days go on. So I, I'm, I'm curious as to that relationship, but Marcel, do you want to um, take the Next, and I believe our, our last question. I know question. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it, it ties in a bit to, you know, the kind of seismic social shifts that we've experienced during, you know, this whole COVID, COVID time. And of course, you know, the enduring, that coupled with the enduring political and moral crisis that is uh, racism in this country. Um, and I was just doing, you know, the, like a, just a Google search about, you know, perhaps what the plastic surgery had to say about, you know, race and racism. And I came across this, this um, journal article. I, I think, um, Alka, you'll be able to tell me like what, what like tier this journal is, but it's a journal called Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. And uh, this summer, um, a, a, team of people, of surgeons, published this article called How to Embrace Anti-Racism as a U.S. Plastic Surgeon. And the article is really, it's interesting in a lot of ways, but but one line that really stuck out to me was 
the surgeon authors um, emphasis on the importance of quote cultural competence at every level in the field of plastic surgery. And so, I mean, I know your experience too, as someone who has worked in the medical field and who studies the medical field, this idea, this sort of paradigm of cultural competence as being this kind of like diversity and inclusion framework um, that, you know, has been widely critiqued in a variety of realms, but to see it, see this idea of cultural competence and even the idea of anti-racism as a political praxis in plastic surgery to me was like very striking. Um, and so I was, I, I, I'm super curious, I guess, to hear your take on, on this, this idea, like like what, what do you, what are your thoughts and reactions to the idea that, you know, uh, U.S. plastic surgery as an industry can take an anti-racist stance? Like, do you think that there is a place for cosmetic surgery business in the fight against systemic racism? If so, where do you see that happening? For me, I guess it's just, it was a bit of a counterintuitive relationship that was a bit striking to me. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is a super interesting article. Um, and I think to answer your question, I I would say almost every industry has a place in the fight against systemic racism, but I don't know if I would put plastic surgery on the front lines of that fight. Um, I think that, you know, this is not actually the first time I've seen an argument like this, that cosmetic surgeons uh, are uniquely invested and capable of cultural competence. Uh, and, and in some sense, this points to the kind of unique relationship that plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons have with their patients. They hark back to an older model where the surgeon knows the patient, but they spend time figuring out you know, their social world, their motivations, if they have kids, what's going on, why they want this change. Uh, so that doctor-patient relationship and the building of rapport is actually critical before a surgeon is going to operate on a patient because you kind of have to, to have uh, some trust and faith before you embark on this voluntary procedure to um, to modify what's otherwise a healthy body. So this, and, and you wanna make sure you're on the same page. And so surgeons do a lot of that uh, figuring out um, and spending time with patients to do that. And so they end up knowing something about patients and have, have touted in other settings compared to other kinds of doctors the increased time that they spend with patients and their awareness of, of cultural trends, political trends, um, maybe more so. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that targeting plastic surgeons and, and foregrounding plastic surgeons is the way to make the biggest chip on systemic racism. Uh, I think that while the kinds of work that plastic surgeons do in broadening beauty norms and uh, pointing to the potential for the lack of, of um, fixedness of race. You know, what they're doing by, by doing these procedures is suggesting that these physical features that we all just take for granted as immutable and stable markers of racial identity are not that, that they could be changed and that they're, you know, they're kind of fluid and in between in some ways. Um, so that's, that's work that has the potential for, for slow social change and how we think about bodies and the relationship to social identities. But um, just because they've moved on from a historical one-size-fits-all look of whiteness to recognizing a more diverse array of, of beautiful appearances, I don't know that I would want them in the front seat of driving a new anti-racist American 
future or global future for that matter. I think that the profession of plastic surgery itself actually remains very white in the United States. It's um, still skewed primarily to, to older white men, though that's changing. Um, and there have been more, more incipient efforts in recent years to think about diversifying the field. So partially I see this as a reaction to plastic surgery situation within the larger American medical field and medical profession where there's been this need to reckon with uh, racism and systemic racism and think about the sort of complicity of the medical sciences in that effort historically in the United States. Um, and I think that it's, it's hard to see them as offering a unique path that would, that would totally transform this appeal. I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Alka Menon of Yale University, who has just shared such a wealth of, of insights and information with us about her research on um, race, gender, and cosmetic surgery procedures in the U.S. and around the world. So thank you so much for making the time to chat with us today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Amazing. Thank you. And for everyone who's listening, as you know, this is a top-ranked podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify, and on Instagram at Top Rank Podcast. So thanks for being here. And, and Alka, if folks who want to get more acquainted with you and your work, uh, where, where should they go? Uh, so you can find out more about me and my work at my website, which is www.alkamenon.com, um, or just Google me. The key to life for Google. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, we will we'll be in touch with you soon. So looking forward to to being connected and have a great rest of your night. Give me a little bit, make my wine out my